The Dublin I was born to, said James Stevens, was poor and Protestant and athletic. While very young, I extended my range and entered a Dublin that was poor and Catholic and Gaelic, a very wonder world. Then, as a young writer, I further extended to a Dublin that was poor and artistic and political. Then I made a Dublin for myself, my Dublin. But, of course, his uh, Dublin was in his bones. I mean, the charwoman's daughter, for instance, is a marvellous uh, fantasy of Dublin itself, the whole spirit of the of the of it and of course the uh, he gets all the spirit of the uh, uh, mountains the Dublin mountains in the clock of gold which is set among them and with that wonderful ending where all the fairies troop out so that indeed it was Dublin which first inspired him Austin Clark others who remember James Stevens are Sean McBride and Monk Gibbon I feel that I'm using a sort of cliché when I said, uh, when I say uh, that um, Stevens looked like uh, one's idea of a leprechaun. But it is the nearest thing you can say. Uh, you ask me, well, well, why do you say a leprechaun? Uh, was it his height? No, no, it wasn't his height. There are a lot of um, small men in the world, and they don't look like leprechauns. Uh, it was. I suppose what I'd call his bumpy face. Well, James was a very small man, uh, nearly deformed, not not deformed, but gave the appearance of being a bit deformed and had this very long face, uh, with a tremendous twinkle in his eye always. He had an uneven face, a rather interesting face, uh, but a quite unique face. I can't think of anybody that I would say he was like James Stevens. James Stevens was like himself. And that holds true, by the way, of the inner man also. Uh, the inner James Stevens was like James Stevens and no one else. And uh, this uh, curious sort of uh, rugged uh, face uh, did suggest an Irish leprechaun. Of course, I have to pretend that I know how I came to write my poems. But I'll also have to admit, as between us, that I only know in a sort of way. I've never sat down and, say, and said to myself, now I'm going to write a poem. It really happened the other way about. And I had very little say in the matter. What actually happened was that a poem grabbed me by the back of the neck and said, sit down and write me. So down I sat, wondering a bit what it would be about. And there I was being dictated to by this utter stranger who also always said to me, you do me well or I'll knock your block off. And believe me, I've always worked harder for that poem thing than I've ever worked to get the famous old piece of meat and two veg. When the poem is finished, that's another matter. I know now what it was about, and up to a point I know how it was done. There's a process, or a ghost, or something or other in the mind, which we call the unconscious. But don't let that name worry you. It's called that because it seems to be able to do most of its work without having to bother thinking about it. And it goes along so easily that you, who are conscious, don't seem to have anything much to do with it. 
that generally is the way a poem is born. That's the way in which art and music and humor and a whole lot of other things come into life. First, there they are not. And then, pretty suddenly, there they are. Now, as to how a poem is written, or as to how a poem writes itself. When I was very young, I used to meet a number of quite old people. They looked old, too. They had white hair, and cracked voices, and shivery hands, and their legs used to have a habit of folding up under them if somebody wasn't around to prop them up. People don't get as old as that nowadays. They used to start getting old and fat about 50, and then they got thin and stiff about 60, and then they got all wobbly and odd about 70. <clears throat> but nowadays, we people are as lively as a pet lamb when we're 90. We live in a different world, I think, and I think, too, that we are quite different people from what great-grandpapa and great-grandmama used to be. Anne Stevens, when writing his poetry, wrote about some of these old people he knew in Dublin at the beginning of this century. One time I asked an old lady what it felt like to be old, and she answered me very simply, very honestly, it feels stiff-like, said she. Well, I'd never felt stiff, so I wasn't able to make much out of that knowledge. Then, another time, I remembered an old gentleman. I used to sit on his, on his knee now and again, and he used to make faces at me now and again. He had white whiskers under his chin, and his ears used to waggle a bit. So one time, later on, I made a little poem about him. And this is the queer thing, and the point, about this old age stuff. The little poem revealed to me what it was that I really thought about that old gentleman. His name was Danny Murphy, and so far as I could get him, here he is. <clears throat> he was as old as old can be. His little eye could scarcely see. His mouth was sunken in between his nose and chin, and he was lean and twisted up and withered quite so that he couldn't walk aright. His pipe was always going out, and then he'd have to search about in all his pockets, and he'd mow, dearly me, and musha now, and then he'd light his pipe, and then he'd let her go clean out again. He couldn't dance or jump or run, or ever have a bit of fun like me and Susan when we shout and dance and throw ourselves about. But when he laughed, then you could see he was as young as young could be. James Stevens had an impoverished childhood and was reluctant to talk about it. Monk Gibbon remembers that he was unwilling to talk at all about his life. Instead, he would talk about his writing. But in any case, I don't think that Stevens was the autobiographical kind. I don't think that he wanted to uh, unburden himself directly. He, he wanted uh, what you might call... A, uh, a, a, a veil of art just hung between the, the reality and what he'd done with the reality. So I don't think that he would ever, I don't think he'd ever have written his own autobiography, and I don't think he'd have been very easy to extract a, a biography from, certainly in the earlier stages. 
Was it all only a story that was plausible enough? Or was it only my imagination trying to fill it in with convincing detail? Two impressions would, however, keep coming uppermost. The touch of the clown that I thought I had seen, I had seen in him on the occasion of our first meeting. The flicker of pained remembrance of his early days that often later had winced across his face. This is the late Brinsley McNamara, who as a young writer up from the country, met Stevens in Dublin. It was the look for a moment of he who gets slapped, as in Andrew's play of that title about a clown. Stevens, one heard, had had bitter early years. He had known people acquainted with hunger and want, as so many of his stories went so clearly to show. But how had come, by what amazing effort of will, his wonderful equipment as a writer, and even leaving that aside, how had he come to be a most efficient secretary shorthand typist in one of the largest legal firms in Dublin? How had he come to have such a finely cultured knowledge of the whole range of English literature? How had he come in his middle twenties to leap at one bound into the, into the accomplishment of such magical verse and prose? The secret lay behind the mask that would keep coming down over the face and would keep coming down more and more often as the years went on until towards the end it seemed to have become his habitual expression. Yet often enough he would cause it to disappear by some other sort of magic and then for moments there would be a Stephen so young, young, that he might never have grown up at all. Austin Clark also found it difficult to discover much about Stephen's childhood. Of course, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't really tell you about his early life. He told us very nothing, uh, very little about it. He used to say, for instance, that when he was young, he was so uh, hungry that he used to steal the. Uh, bread from the ducks in Stephen's Green, but he always said it with a laugh. And we did, we did know that he had been, uh, probably had a very bad time. You had, there is a very fine, as you know, a biography often by Hilary Pied, and she's found out as much as possible about those early years. But to us, he never mentioned them, and nobody... He was obviously very sensitive about it. Nobody uh, asked him or followed up his remark about the ducks and the swans, possibly two of them, with any kind of uh, question at all. Monk Gibbon has a theory about that often told story of Stephen stealing the bread from the ducks in Stephen's Green. My own feeling is that he would use that as a metaphor, a true metaphor, but he would try to think, what is the significant action of my life that will uh, provide a metaphor for that particular period? And uh, Justice Moore had done the same thing, and incidentally it's in Stephen's Green again. Moore took off all his clothes <laughs> to his nurse's horror, ran naked along the paths in Stephen's Green. Well, in the same way, um, Stephen's would 
dramatise the, the food of the ducks, and it would. But um, uh, to go into greater detail, I think, would have been very unlucky. We are indebted to Hilary Pyle, Stephen's biographer, for what information we have on Stephen's early years. He never really said anything about it at all. There were various stories going around. George Moore said that he walked from Dublin to Belfast as a boy and he would have lost his life if it hadn't been for a charitable apple woman. And he himself spoke of hiding in Stephen's Green to catch the ducks. He was as poverty-stricken as that. And he never really gave uh, even the um, exact date of his birth to any of his friends. His, his reason was that he thought an author's life wasn't of any importance or cast any light on his work. In fact, he used to uh, tell then that his, he shared a birthday with, um, with James Joyce. Yes. I'm not sure what the origin of this was. Probably Joyce suddenly realised that Stevens existed and got terribly pleased and excited because they both had the same Christian name and then Stephen was the name of Joyce's hero. So then probably Stevens entered into the spirit of the game. I, I think he didn't mislead anybody. He may not even have known the date of his own birth. He may have thought that it was in February 1882, and because Joyce said the second, well, he said, this is my date of birth too. Uh, but it was, wasn't really the date of his birth. As I found out, he was born two years before that. How much then did you discover about his, his childhood and his boyhood? I found out about his schooling and uh, two ways of, of making sure of his date of birth where the school gave his age at the time that he was admitted and he was admitted in 1886 at the age of six. Then I looked up the uh, records of births uh, in the... Uh, customs House, and there was no entry for Stevens in 1882 whatsoever, whereas there was uh, a boy, uh, an, an, an unnamed male child, born to the woman who'd sent the boy to school in 1886, and this was for the 9th of February 1880, so I think that was pretty conclusive. Then, through the uh, Collins widows and through Harry Annette, I found out about his school days, uh, there was a gap because he seems to have left the Collins family uh, who he went to live with after he was at school in 1901 and then he turned up again in 1906 at uh, MacReady's office as a solicitor's clerk. And I think those five years may be the years in which he was marching up to Belfast and also you know, really at death's door for a crust of bread, wandering round, not quite sure what he wanted to do with life. When do you think he wanted to be a writer? Because he wasn't that happy as, as a solicitor's clerk, was he? No, he wasn't. I think he was always writing anyway. And the earliest uh, poem I came across uh, is a rather delightful ballad he wrote for a friend of his employer when he was in the MacReady office. And then he started writing articles for Arthur Griffith. And these are very much of a satirical turn... He was a very prolific writer. He used to say that he'd, he'd write about 20 poems in a night. Well, at that stage, he wasn't writing very worthy stuff. You know, he never preserved any of it. Uh, but he must have all the time, I think, uh, felt 
that he wanted to write. When he was living in the tenement with the Collins family, he uh, apparently used to take the uh, paper the children had their sweets wrapped up in scribble verses on it. And this may be why he left, that he, he felt he had to dissociate himself from uh, a life which couldn't be of value to him, uh, to find his own way in the world and decide what he was going to write about. There followed a prolific period for Stevens, a time when he mastered his craft and produced dozens of articles, poems, Insurrections was published in 1909, and in 1912, three books, The Hill of Vision, The Charwoman's Daughter, and The Crock of Gold. Seamus O'Sullivan knew him well in those years. Those years between 1906 and 1912 were, I think, the most productive in his life, and it was my rare privilege to be, in most cases, the first recipient of their of the work first and prose as it came hot from the source. It was quite a usual thing to receive a letter of a morning announcing that he had written the best poem in the world, or that he had got twelve last night, and appointing a meeting for the evening when he would disclose the contents of his latest catch. Towards the end of 1911, he was hard at work on the, his most popular work, The Crock of Gold, and, as I have told elsewhere, he was in the habit of bringing up the chapters as he wrote them to the rooms in Blessington Street, where at the time I was living. Sunday morning was the favourite time for those visits. It was indeed the only time when he and I, whole-time workers both, had, our, had time at our disposal. His voice at that time had a magnificent cadence, especially in his reading of poetry. And as I remember now, as I remember it now, I am reminded of Coleridge's description of Wordsworth's reading of his prelude, an Orphic song indeed to its own music chanted. And then I pressed the shell close to my ear and listened well. And straightway, like a bell, came low and clear the slow, sad murmur of far-distant seas, whipped by an icy breeze upon a shore, wind-swept and desolate. And in the hush of waters was the sound of pebbles rolling round, forever rolling with a hollow sound, and bubbling seaweeds as the waters go, swish to and fro their long, cold tentacles of icy grey. There was no day, nor ever came a night setting the stars alight to wander at the moon. Was twilight only, and the frightened croons smitten to whimpers of the dreary wind and waves that journeyed blind. And then I loosed my ear. Oh, it was sweet to hear a cart go jolting down the street. Reminiscing in later years in Memories of Dublin, James Stevens wrote about the excitement of discovering uh, the new Sinn Féin movement at this time, Gaelic, political and artistic. Arthur Griffith started to introduce him to uh, people like James Connolly and uh, Seamus O'Sullivan. Uh, he probably first really came to the attention of the established writers uh, through A.E. because there's a lovely story uh, in George Moore's book about A.E. wanting to find a writer as a rival to Singh who uh, Yeats had discovered 
and uh, was flaunting everywhere. So he put on his... He was reading Sinn Féin, and he saw this man, James Stevens. He put on his hat and coat and went down and called at MacReady's office. And uh, he said to the clerk at the door, would you please uh, ask uh, Mr Stevens to have a word with me? And the clerk said, I am Mr Stevens. In May 1912... George Russell wrote to his friend, John Quinn. My dear Quinn, I was glad to hear from you again. I think I owed you a letter. I enclose a copy of my review of Stephen's Book of Verses. I do not think his verse is satisfactory, but he has a great splash of genius and is poor, and I wanted to help him. I think he will be a great storyteller, and he has got a masterpiece or two concealed in his skull. Anyhow, he is one of the most vivid, vital and delightful persons I know in Ireland, entirely lovable. His story, The Charwoman's Daughter, published by Macmillans, has got great praise from all reviewers, and he is writing an astonishing prose fantasy now. He read me one chapter which almost brought tears to my eyes. It was so beautiful. But he has also plans for a great book, a story of a young man, which, if he writes it as he told me, and he has power to do it, will lift him up as our representative Irish novelist, and he will take the place poor Singh was going to take before he died. Stevens is a bigger man in himself than Singh, with more brains, vitality, humour and imagination, though as a writer, of course, so far he is not in it with Singh. I place my trust in Stevens' personality, which is astonishing, and I think you would like him. If you find your way to Ireland this year, I am sure you would like to meet this queer little man, so charged with endless grit and fire. His story, The Charwoman's Daughter, is published on your side, and I suppose you have read it. He is just beginning to get into his stride now. He may never be a great poet, but I will swear he will be a great storyteller, with one masterpiece at least to his credit. The English reviewers already have compared him with big names. How differently Thomas Hardy and James Stevens would have written about this, says one critic, speaking, I think, about an Arnold Bennett book. Yours ever, A.E. That was Stevens as seen in 1912 by his patron, A.E., and one must bear in mind a patron anxious that his discovery would prove an international success. The following year, Stevens went to Paris, where he befriended Maud Gon McBride's son, Sean McBride, then a schoolboy aged nine years. He used to visit our house from time to time, and then later on, he used to take me out occasionally. I'd uh, have long walks and uh, ice cream or something like that. Uh, he was marvellous at storytelling, and he was really a born children's storyteller. Then he used to take me out also. I was, used to collect stamps. I was fanatically interested in stamp collecting as a youngster. And he used to take me out on a stamp buying expedition. Uh, we would walk along the quays in, in Paris where there were stalls of books and stamps on the walls of the riverbank. And it's by stamps. And then occasionally he used to bring me into a frightfully expensive second hand uh, stamp shop. Uh, and he used to give me free run to buy what I wanted to. And I was very worried all the time at the price of the stamps. Later on, then in Dublin, we used to see quite a lot of him. And I remember, remember him particularly in connection with uh, Sunday evenings that uh, George Russell, A, used to have. Uh, all the Dublin 
literary people and intelligentsia used to uh, make a pilgrimage on every Sunday evening to uh, George Russell's house in Tern in Radgar. And we saw get on to the number 15 tram. Jane Stevens used to usually call in to us to collect us on the way to the A um, Sunday evenings. <clears throat> he was a very good mimic, and he used to get a lot of fun out of mimicking uh, George Russell and W.B. Yeats. Uh, he used to copy the mannerisms and this he did very often on the tram on the way up to the uh, George Russell Sunday evening uh, parties. Of course, at that period, uh, when people went out to these regular weekly uh, receptions in the evening, people like Yeats and people like A.E. used to think out well in advance what they were going to say. This was no casual conversation. This was, in effect, a, a show being put on. And uh, James Stevens realised this and was getting great fun out of it, wondering what particular show we're going to have tonight. If Stevens allowed A.E. the centre of the stage on Sunday nights, in his own turn he held court with some of the younger writers. This is how the late Brinsley McNamara remembers him. Stevens came in, a small man, into the large room where we stood. I was to learn that he had a way of coming into a room like no one else. And so it was, even on this, the first occasion that I saw him come into one. He looked startled at the door, like some frightened creature in the woods. And then he began to creep in, as it were, shyly, his eyes and all his face lighting up into a smile. We were made known to one another and sat down. Our friend withdrew and we were left to talk, but I couldn't open my mouth. I felt that the piercing yet laughing eyes of Stevens were going right through me. He saw me for what I actually was, a callow youth from the country with a sudden taste for hero worship, himself the object of it. No doubt he felt that presently I would be asking him how he had come to write insurrections, how he had happened to conceive his happy story of the charwoman's daughter. And this was how he met the situation, forestalling me before I could ask him a single question. If it's poetry you're thinking of writing, young fellow, here is how it's done. You assemble the stuff first, a whole woody mass of stuff. Then you make an attack on it with a hatchet. You prune it and lock it and hack it to bits. If you think any of the bits are any good, you chop them with the hatchet into lines. Then you put the lines together and call them poems. And finally, you send these to Messrs. Monsell and Company, who may publish them sometime. And if it's prose you would be thinking of doing, here is the whole secret. If you use certain words at the top of a page, don't use them again at the middle or at the bottom of the same page. And you'll have to look over all the pages to see that you haven't done the same thing anywhere else. You may find yourself having to cut out nearly the whole of the book by following this simple precaution. But if your story has anything in it, by the time that that is done, 
It will come through magnificently. And uh, just in case you may be feeling inclined to ask me what I read myself, what I may be reading at the moment, well, here you are. In one pocket, I have a small copy of the poems of William Blake, and in the other, a copy of the latest novel by William J. Locke, a most popular writer of today. The man actually writes well. I could never even faintly attempt to convey the exquisite way in which Stevens conducted this gentle quenching of me. I had given him an opening for a performance, and everything that he said to me was performed as well as spoken as he went on. His talk was full of darts and flights as he spoke grandly of Milton and of Blake, and then in humorous appreciation of lesser writers even than W.J. Locke, a man of the moment whose books were selling by the million. His face as he talked was swept by every variety of expression, from grave to gay and back again from gay to grave. He suited action to the word and the word to action and seemed to me to be in different parts of the room all at the same time. Now on the center of the floor in meditation, now capering up and down close to the walls. Again, tailor fashion, sitting on the floor. Then back in the chair, looking like a gnome. Finally, in his measured cadence periods, a delivery of what I thought the most foolish set of opinions about men and things that I had ever heard. It seemed as if, after all his pouring out of wish and wisdom, he just had to play the fool for a while. And with this change in his performance had come the most extraordinary change of expression upon his face. It had the look now more of a mask than of a face. And the odd thing was that it seemed familiar. I had seen it somewhere else before, but where, where? That was the question that bothered me as the morning drew to an end. It was going to be a quest now for the mask beneath the face rather than for the face beneath the mask. And what would that reveal of the man? Another of the younger writers, Austin Clark, knew Stephen's poetry before he met the poet. Actually, I was a student at University College Dublin and uh, the meeting was really uh, by chance. Uh, I had been, of course, uh, a great admirer of his poetry at that time, his lyrics, and uh, especially The Hill of Vision. And, in fact, I used to cycle out. I lived in the north of Dublin, cycle out uh, to the country and I had a favourite tree there up which I used to climb it was quite easy sit hidden in it and read poetry and I read there the Hill of Vision and other poems of James Stevens well all this was as I say is a long time ago I should say it was in 1915 I had my first poem published in uh, New Ireland uh, which was a literary and political uh, paper, weekly, uh, of course, seditious, Sinn Féin. And at that time, it was edited by uh, P.J. Little, who afterwards, of course, was Minister Post and Telegraphs. And um, it was a friend of mine, 
very great Greek scholar, Stephen McKenna, who translated Plotinus. I don't remember how I met him, but he ha had been very kind to me, and uh, I showed him a poem which I had written, and he immediately got it printed in this uh, Sinn Féin paper. And uh, then, as a reward, he said he would bring me out to see A.E., George Russell, who had a kind of uh, literary uh, gathering at his house every Sunday. Uh, so he brought me out there, and he uh, was there with a uh, room crowded with all the writers of the time and other visitors. He spoke to me very kindly. He was a very kind man about my poem. And then he placed me in the seat of honour beside him. And he introduced me to, to my surprise, to James Stephens, who was in the next chair. And I say surprise, I'd never seen Stephens, and I don't remember whether I knew what he was like. Actually, as you know, he was a very small little man, almost, you would say, a hunchback. And he had a very thin, uh, twisted neck, and a very large head. In fact, he looked like a gnome, and I will say a rather uh, malicious-looking gnome. And at the same time, his face, I suppose, was his features, like his neck, was twisted. Uh, so that the moment I glanced at him, he looked cross, and indeed he always looked cross until he was speaking, when his features became mobile. And... Uh, whether he thought I was too looking rather pleased with myself, indeed I wasn't, I was very shy with all these people around me, but when A.E. turned and said, uh, Stevens uh, said to me, that was a very good piece of verse you had the other day, but I hope you don't think it's poetry. Well, I was rather confounded by this, you see, and I didn't recover for the evening. In fact, I felt rather depressed. And, uh, however, when I left, he said, come along any Sunday. So I did come out the next Sunday, and there was James Stevens again. I actually avoided him, and there were other people like Darrell Figures and uh, uh, Seamus, uh, I mean, Joseph O'Neill and uh, Miss Purser, indeed all sorts of people. And I sat there listening uh, fascinated by their conversation but uh, there was no other young person there and uh, when I left I decided that uh, well I decided that I wouldn't go there until I was a little older and I'd perhaps written a book so I went off and and when I got into the tram a little farther down to my surprise James Seams was in it so, so hardly anyone else in the tram, I, I sat beside him and uh, I wanted to be very friendly after our first meeting. Uh, so I said to him that uh, our, when our lecturer in English in college was his friend uh, Thomas McDonough. And he was very pleased to talk and then hoping further to please him. And I said... 
Uh, he told me recently that he lent you the Epithalamium, uh, that great poem by uh, Edmund Spencer, and that uh, immediately after you had uh, read it, you sat down and wrote your uh, Hill of Vision. Well, he glared at me, do you see? And of course, I realized <laughs> I'd made a terrible mistake because he, it had rather implied that he had been influenced immediately by this poem. Well, I didn't... Uh, I didn't see him again until after I'd published my first book uh, and uh, I met him and I had then gone back to visit A.E. every Sunday like the other writers now that I was one myself with a book and Stevens was quite friendly and he invited me to his own house or rather his flat. He lived in, uh, now what's it called, Upper Fitzwilliam Street, almost opposite that horrible gap, which I still think is there. Wherever I pass, I have to close my eyes, where the uh, ESB pulled down and destroyed that great... Uh, is it still a gap there? The building is now complete, the new oh, building. Is it, yes. Yes, well, I'll probably still have to close my eyes when... Uh, going by in the bus. I, uh, his flash was upstairs. When I came in, there were a number of people there, and I was sitting beside a, a strange man dressed in black with a very pale face who proceeded to talk to me in what I might call a very pale voice, in fact, the voice of a bore. He went on monotonously for assumed ages, and then suddenly... James Stevens, who had been sitting somewhere in the other room, hurried up to me, said, come over here. And then a loud voice said to me, that man, we don't know what to do. We don't know who he is. He's a terrible bore. He comes here every Sunday, every uh, evening, you see. It's actually, it was a Tuesday reception. Every Tuesday, he said, and we don't know what to do, and people won't come here. <laughs> Well, uh, I felt very embarrassed, even more, because I think the poor chap uh, heard, heard it, you see. And uh, after that, I often met this strange man. I think he was a clerk somewhere in an office. And I would uh, salute him in a friendly way, but never stopped. So I never went back to Stephen's uh, flat uh, in Dublin. We have also an account of James Joyce's first meeting with Stevens. It was a case of instant dislike, said Stevens years afterwards on the BBC when he told how he accidentally met Joyce one morning when walking through the city. I was walking up Dawson Street, thinking of nothing, which was and is my favourite form of thinking, when I noticed that two men were coming towards me and that one of them was deliberating upon me as if I were a life boy spotted suddenly in a sea of trouble. Suddenly they stopped, and that one said, Stevens, this is Joyce. And then, turning to his companion, he said, I've got to run, and he ran. There stood Joyce and I, he stuck with me, and I stuck with him. And the other drowning man was swimming to a reef two streets off. 
Joyce looked at me without a word in his mouth, and I looked at him with nothing in my mouth except vocabularies. We halted upon each other. We were very different-looking people. Joyce was tall, which I wasn't. He was thin, which I wasn't. He wore specs, which I didn't. He looked down at me, which I couldn't. He rubbed his, his chin at me, which I wouldn't. Suddenly, I remembered a very cultivated remark which I had once heard a gentleman in a tall hat make to another in a straw hat, whom he didn't know what to do with. And I repeated it to Joyce. Come and have a drink, said I. He turned, and we walked back towards Grafton Street, and I regaled him with the gayest remarks that I could think of about what is known as the weather and this and that. <clears throat> An American, said I, holds that it never rains in Ireland except between the showers. <clears throat> ah, said Joyce. But a French lady, I continued, told me that it rains in Ireland whether there are showers or not. Ah, said Joyce. This is Pat Kinsel, as I continued, as we halted outside the first tavern that we came to. Ah, said Joyce. And we went in. <clears throat> the barman brought the refreshment that I ordered. It was called a tailor of malt. It was larger than a single, and it only escaped being a double by the breath of a tram ticket. And it cost me three pence. When Joyce <clears throat> had silently dispatched one-third of a tailor into his system, he became more human. He looked at me through the spectacles that made his blue eyes look nearly as big as the eyes of a cow. Very magnifying they were. It takes, said I brightly, seven tailors to make a man, but two of these tailors make twins. Seven of them, I went on, make a clan. Here Joyce woke up. He exploded moderately into conversation. He turned his chin and his specs at me and away down at me and confided the secret to me that he had read my two books, that grammatically... I didn't know the difference between a semicolon and a colon, that my knowledge of Irish life was non-Catholic and so non-existent, and that I should give, give up writing and take to a good job like shoe shining as a more promising profession. I confided back to him that I had never read a word of his and that if heaven preserved to me my protective wits, I never would read a word of his unless I was asked to destructively review it. We stalked out of Pat Kinsler's. That is, he stalked, I trotted. Joyce lifted his hat to me in a very foreign manner, and I remarked, you should engrave on your banner and on your notepaper the slogan, Rejoice and be exceeding bad. Ah, said Joyce, and we went our opposite ways, and we didn't see one another again for two years. And after 1912, the circle of writers and artists in which the late Seamus O'Sullivan and James Stevens moved, that circle began to break up. Though O'Sullivan remembers, they still met occasionally. The last occasion on which we met in Dublin stands out very clearly in my memory, and for a curious reason. It was in the Bailey restaurant, and Stevens was being literally dragged through the room by a lead 
on which he was attempting to hold back a magnificent Irish terrier, one of the old-fashioned Wheaton type. And as he and the dog were about to disappear through the door, Stevens turned back to me and said, with that flicker of the upraised eyebrow which was so familiar to his friends, this fellow is the boss. That terrier, which he described as the boss, was afterwards to become one of my own household. And when at last it died at a good old age, I tried to write its epitaph in the lines on the death of an Irish terrier, which the curious may find in one of my later books of verse. I may be accused once again of praising old times, but I still think that the Dublin of those days was a very remarkable place, and the band of poets, critics and artists who foregathered at the House of A.E. or in the Bailey Restaurant or in the famous studio in Brunswick Street, where I think Stevens once sat for a portrait to Estella Solomon's, was of an outstanding quality. Further afield, too, we had our meetings, and I have very delightful memories of Stevens's quaint little figure as he jumped over a gorse bush on the side of Hoth Head and executed one of his marvellous and improvised little dances on the summer's road. He was, in truth, the very life and soul of every gathering in which he had a part. And years later, when he was living in London, Stevens, in his broadcasts, relived his Dublin days, particularly his walks through the city and its hinterland. One time, I used to love trotting about in the Dublin hills. That was very wonderful. For although the hills are close to a fairly big city, they are yet almost as solitary as a desert. Personally, I think that everybody needs to be alone now and again. But you've got to choose your place to be alone in. When you go to the country, or when you go to the sea, you should go in your crowd. For you don't take the country or the sea with you. They are not in your heart. But when you go up the mountain, you should go by yourself. And when you're up there, you might, as it were, open your ears and listen, and open your eyes and look. You will be listening to the strangest thing that is in the world. You will be listening to solitude. And you will be looking at solitude too. And you may get a sense of it and of yourself that you will never get anywhere else. I'll break off here for a moment. For I remember that I was in a bad temper one day. And what did I do? I insulted a mountain. Maybe there was somebody with me. Or maybe it was raining and I couldn't go up the hill. Anyway, the point is that in this little verse, it's very little, there are five or six lines which you must say in one breath. And then you should be as out of breath as if you had climbed the hill. Here are the lines. The mountains stand and stare around. They are far too proud to speak. Although they're rooted in the ground, up they go, peak after peak, beyond the tallest house and still, climbing over tree and hill, until you think they'd never stop going up top over top into the clouds. Yet I mark that a sparrow or a lark, flying just as high, can sing as if he'd not done anything. I think the mountains ought to be taught a little modesty. Then came the Easter Rising, 1916. 
In her book on Stevens, Hilary Pyle tells the remarkable story of how, on his daily walk to his job as curator of the National Gallery, Stevens witnessed the rising and had, within a matter of weeks, published an account of it, Insurrection in Dublin. It's interesting that Stevens supported Connolly's views much more than those of Larkin, even though he came from a working-class area and knew it intimately. But Connolly had the idealistic aims that uh, Stevens needed as a stimulus for his writing. He was an intellectual, and Stevens was too. But as regards the insurrection, he did firmly state in his account of it that he was not associated with politics. And he wrote a letter later the same year to say that he felt that he wanted to see Ireland in a different way, uh, to go further than the people who'd been uh, uh, seeing it in a political or a fanciful manner. And with other writers, for instance, Russell, uh, also uh, Griffith, I think, too, uh, he in a sense, looked beyond the insurrection long before it happened because they were very eager to establish a new united Ireland in a positive fashion, one which was uniting literature and art and political thought uh, in an Irish way. It wasn't just a wish to get rid of England. It was a wish to build a new Ireland. Hilary Pyle argues that, along with many other writers, Stevens became disillusioned with the political developments which followed, particularly the Civil War. Uh, I think uh, the thought of people who got into power after the treaty rather disillusioned them and upset them, and he himself went off to England and lived there for the rest of his life. He didn't see any future in the new setup, and also I think a dream and, and sort of an objective had been completely lost. I think he was very disillusioned. To him, the Chisholm movement had been a tremendous development, I think, in Ireland, in future development of Ireland, and I think he was very disillusioned, bound off by the... Uh, civil war split and so on and the bitterness which had uh, developed. A world of job and jobbers has appeared, wrote Stevens to an American friend in 1923 and the late gunmen are nowhere or are wondering what it was they gunned for anyway. Sean McBride. Yes, and I think he was also disillusioned also with the literary circles. He felt that they had themselves also got involved in, in the political mess as he would regard it and had taken sides too bitterly in the situation which had developed. And what of James Stevens' reputation now as an Irish writer? Austin Clark. Well, of course, I think he was a, a fine poet and, of course, a superb prose writer. And yet uh, the tragic thing is that I think for at least the uh, last 20 years of his life, he wrote nothing except, uh, I think, one slim volume 
of verse different from his earlier work and promising something in the future. And I've often wondered why he stopped. And uh, I think there are two reasons. The first, I think, is that he was, uh, and this is only my theory, that he was successful too quickly. As you know, his uh, first prose book, the I think it was The Crock of Gold, or was it the other one? Charmer's Daughter. Anyway, his first uh, prose novel was a complete uh, success. You see, he made an immense name on it. And uh, I don't think that was too good. If, in Austin Clarke's opinion, Stevens had had to struggle in those early years, he might have had more perseverance as a writer. There was the further consideration that Stevens found such success as a talker that he neglected his writing, a point which also struck Monk Gibbon on the occasion of his first meeting with Stevens. I came away a little sad in one way because I felt now we know why he hardly ever writes a book. The Americans have discovered that they've captured the most brilliant talker in two hemispheres and they've caged the canary. Well, they've caged it for half the year. He was lured to America for a sort of nominal job to arrange somebody's books in their library. And uh, they were charming to him, and it was a nice, restful uh, occupation, and all he had to do was talk. And presently, Stevens uh, started talking, and he really was, I won't say a professional talker, because that's a rather slighting way of putting it, but he was a master talker. He would embroider a theme. And uh, the occasion, uh, on this occasion, the theme was the courtship of the spiders on his wooden fence at Wembley. He was living at Wembley in a suburban villa of all places at this time. And uh, he, uh, I, I think it was summer, and he was telling us about the courtship of the spiders on his uh, fence which, as you know, ends rather disastrously for the male. However, he didn't go into that tragic side of the uh, matter. And uh, I remember he uh, embroidered his theme greatly on the subject of the benevolent old tortoise on the grass below them, you see, who uh, looked up on this occasion rather than down, like a sort of Olympian Zeus, watching the antics of these young people and... um, bringing a, a sort of uh, amicable Olympian benevolence to, the, to it. Well, it really was a, a, a sort of um, a, a discourse, a, a professional um, uh, turn to it. And I came away realizing, oh, yes, everything they say about him uh, is right, but uh, he shouldn't be allowed to talk. He should be shut up in a room and made write books instead, and made write, write a few more crocks of gold. Too many books. There are too many books in the world already. Why should I want to add to their number? He said this to me sometime towards the end of the 20s, and soon enough there were no more books from him, and that there were more in them of the quality of the crock of gold I knew full well, for I had heard them talking them in the years before. 
It was in broadcasting that he found the medium which suited him best and of which he was to become such a perfect master. Brinsley McNamara. And a final word from another friend who knew him in his last years in London, Philip Sayers. He often took a stroll with me and said to me once, this was the only exercise he took. Why don't you dig the garden, I asked him. And he said, quite simply and sincerely, that he couldn't bear to put a spade in the soil for fear of he might kill an earthworm. He had the most sensitive feeling of sympathy for all of God's creation. Although he was, I think, devoid of formal religious belief. Yet he did believe strongly in an afterlife, just as he was convinced that he had experienced previous existence. You know, he said to me once, you and I were friends thousands of years ago. He didn't get into company very much in later years. He never saw people. Indeed, it was hard enough to get him to answer letters. These years, too, were cloudy by great sorrow of his son's death and his own long, painful illness. So he tended to be something of a lonely man, although he was always delighted if anyone came to, to see him from Dublin. Indeed, Dublin memories and Dublin news were always subjects of delight to him. He would talk and listen and sip his wine, and then suddenly conversations would give way to poetry as a name or a word would find an echo in one of his verses, which he would speak or almost sing in that magical way of his, which though through broadcasting became of recent years known to so many. His broadcast gave, I think, a greater pleasure to himself as it did to his listeners. Music was in his heart and in his voice. It is a great sorrow to me that that music has been stilled. But as he said to me during the, his illness a couple of years ago, if I die, I have done my day's work. In the scented bud of the morning, oh, when the windy grass went rippling far, I saw my dear one walking slow in the field where the daisies are. We did not laugh and we did not speak as we wandered happily to and fro. I kissed my dear on either cheek in the bud of the morning, oh. A lark sang up from the breezy land. A lark sang down from a cloud afar. As she and I went hand in hand in the field where the daisies are.